0: In the coming months, we all hope to have good news about a vaccine for COVID-19. But if and when we have an effective vaccine, we must also use it effectively. When supply is limited, the first priority must be to vaccinate some people in all countries rather than all people in some countries. Vaccine nationalism will prolong the pandemic, not shorten it.
1: I'm your co-host Teresa and I'm your co-host Nana and on today's episode of Global Get Down we'll be discussing the COVID-19 vaccine in the context of international relations and global health. Almost a year ago, in the beginning of March 2020, we put out an episode on COVID-19 where we discussed some of the it's early implications of the outbreak.
2: Associating the virus with a particular group, we see people stocking up on food and panicking, and then now we have a stock market crash, right? Again today, the stock market... went. But
1: down. a lot has happened since then, so it only seems fitting to revisit this situation today.
3: Absolutely. In just a year, and despite the fact that vaccine development can take an average of 10 to 15 years, we already have several available for use but a lot of questions remain as to how exactly we can go about vaccinating an entire planet in a globalized age as the who has put it no one is safe until everyone is safe so how can we overcome massive inequalities in access to vaccines and healthcare? how might international politics or rivalries get in the way and how can we transform these challenges into valuable lessons for future global health crises
1: help us answer these questions, we've brought on Dr. Prince Adu from the School of Population and Public Health and Godwin Ja from the Peter Allard School of Law. Dr. Adu and Godwin, welcome to the show. Would you like to introduce yourselves?
2: Yes, thank you very much for having me. Um, I teach two courses at the School of Population and Public Health. Um, I teach Um, an undergraduate course um, called Working in International Health, and then I teach a graduate-level course called Global Health and Human Security. I'm also a postdoctoral research um, scholar at the BC Centre for Disease Control, where currently I'm involved with some COVID-related research.
0: Hi, um, my name is Godwin, and I'm a doctoral candidate at the Peter Allard School of Law, and I'm a TA in the School of Population and Public Health, working with Dr. Adu. And my research is focusing generally on international law, more precisely on sustainable development. And I've also worked in the past as a consultant for the United Nations offices on the Children's Fund, that's UNICEF, and also with the UNDP, the development program, and also UNFPA, the family and population office as well.
1: Thank you. So let's get right into the first question. How have global inequalities been exposed in the process to develop, procure, and administer the COVID-19 vaccines?
0: I think that uh, there are two perspectives that um, this question brings up. So just to make it quite short, there's an economic um, challenge here, and then there's also a health challenge. And in the sense of uh, economic challenge, it has been announced that if we do not grant equitable access to vaccines um, across the world, perhaps this year alone, the global economy would contract by 9.2 trillion. And that in itself does not leave out poor countries because as you know, the globalized nature of the global economy in itself requires that uh, transactions are cross-border transactions are more transnational. So that's going to be impacted by our unequal and inequitable access in relation to the the vaccine. Um, Secondly, if we we take it that the vaccines have been produced and are not being distributed, the stark reality is that as of the end of January this year, if you recall, the vaccinations began um, sometime in the first week of December last year. And as of 31st, January, there have been the region of 70 million vaccines that have been administered with only 20,000, for example, being sent to Africa. Now, if you look at the um, quantity of vaccines that have moved in the global north compared to, say, the whole of Africa, which has a little over a billion people, then obviously 20,000 in six weeks of start um, falls greatly below the the expected thresholds that we would envisage in an equitable, you know, del- um, distribution system that we are all um, looking forward to. So this is the these are the two concerns that I want to put up. But then if they are directly linked to what is emerging uh, as the 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 concept of vaccine nationalism, um, the idea that countries are pursuing more self interested and self centred goals um, in direct connection with their national interests, which is not bad in itself. But it exposes these shortcomings because we're dealing with a pandemic, and since it's a global concern, um, handling it at the national level or state-specific level defeats the ultimate purpose of, you know, fighting the pandemic.
3: Absolutely. I mean, I think just as I've been reading articles on this and seeing, as you were mentioning, the vast differences in which countries have been vaccinating their populations and seeing even the supplies that countries have ordered. I mean, I read that Canada, I think, has ordered enough doses to immunize like 500% of the population. Um, that's in stark contrast to a lot of other countries in the world. And it's kind of funny. I read a quote and it said, um, Rich countries buying up vaccines before they're even available is not unlike people hoarding toilet paper, (laughs) which is sort of bringing it back, you know, this time last year, but on a whole new level and obviously a lot more concern. I mean, is there any sort of international plan or framework to make sure that uh, vaccines are distributed equally? I mean, does the WHO have a framework for countries to follow or that it recommends?
2: So when, I, so there is, there is, um, I, I'll tell you something, there, there's always a plan, um, but as to whether the plan is being adequately implemented, um, that's a separate question. But in the beginning of September, specifically September 9th, the WHO unveiled um, its plan. It was called the Fair Allocation Mechanism for COVID Vaccine you know, through their COVAX facility.
0: The facility is critical, the critical mechanism for joint procurement and pulling risk across multiple vaccines so that whatever vaccine is proven to be safe and effective, all countries within the facility will be able to
2: access it. And the plan was that once the vaccines um, were shown, because at the time, you know, there was a race for effective vaccine. And so, the plan or the expectation was that once um, the vaccines were shown to be safe and effective and authorized for use um, then the plan was that countries will receive doses in proportion to their population size right and so they had um, the plans were set up in two steps so the initial plan was initial proportional allocation of doses to countries' um, population until um, all countries reached at least 20% of their population. And then the follow-up plan or phase was to expand coverage to the rest of the population. So this was the ideal plan. And way back in September, before we had, well, just right after um, the Sputnik 5, because that was somewhere around mid August when the Russians um, developed the vaccine, which unfortunately did not um, receive much attention or you know, much positive, um, or the expected um, attention. We didn't get it here, um, in, in the West. But so, to answer that question, yes, there was a plan, but what do we see now, as um, Gordon has already. Um, talked about has been very um, disproportional. Um, countries um, have really more than what they need. Um, poor countries don't even have a fraction. So there is a plan, but the plan has not been followed the way it should have.
1: Yes, yeah, so there have been some concerns that poor countries have been turned into quote-unquote, guinea pigs for vaccine trials.
0: The vaccine is being tested by Britain's Oxford University, but the trial, consisting of 2,000 volunteers in South Africa, has also prompted a fresh wave of anti-vaccine sentiment, reflecting fears of Africans being used as guinea pigs.
1: Could you explain what this means and how it relates to global inequalities?
2: Yeah, I, just briefly, you know, it's a bit contentious. So it, it, it is true, but um, in short, the statement is trying to shed light on the fact that, you know, poor countries are, their context or these populations are used for vaccine trials, right? And, you know, but the other question too is, um, it, it's a bit tricky because um, on one hand, you would have to test some of these new products and I'm using product to capture vaccines or equipment, you would need to test them um, in different contexts, right? To improve its, um, you call it external validity or its ability to be used in different contexts. But th- there's that issue of, well, are you just testing it because you know of the poor regulatory environment in these areas? So are you taking advantage of the populations or not?
3: Godwin, did
2: you want to hop in? It's an interesting question. Um, it's one that
0: goes to the heart of some of the things that I, I do in my studies. So th- last year, sometime in April, there were two French researchers who suggested that um, vaccine trials should take place in Africa. And this was widely published. So it was it's not make-believe. It's, it's this record to that. But their suggestions were roundly rejected by a lot of researchers and African leaders. and But the real challenge with a statement like that by researchers sort of takes us back to um, what has been discussed in post-colonial studies, for example, as medical colonialism, where new forms of um, medications, new forms of uh, medical procedures are sort of tried out <laughs> on some people in other parts of the world, other than in the global North. And when the, the efficacy of those medications or those processes are sort of measured, um, then the success in code is repatriated to the North. And then it is used at a relatively, you know, lower price in the North. And then if those medicines or those practices or those medical interventions will be available to the South, it will come at a high cost so you sort of like externalize the negative conditions that go with the testing but then you take the positive back to the north so so there is some concern with this kind of statement that the south might be used as guinea pigs whether it is true or not at this moment it is not the issue because as it is playing out there's a north at the moment that is receiving the vaccines
3: and at the same time as i understand countries Often agree to hosting these trials because they get access to the vaccines in return if they're successful.
0: Yes, it is true, uh, but then uh, the, the it it, it, will, it will be rather a very optimistic, you know, extremely optimistic point just to make it so because what happens is that sometimes the quantity of the vaccines you are promised under the agreements may fall far below. The what can help you to get herd immunity, Doctor? Um, I just spoke earlier on about that. So, so, so the agreements are not entirely made as agreements between two equal parties. The agreements would tend historically and structurally to favour the where the global capital is situated, usually from the north. So, these kinds of nuances must be accounted for in in those kinds of situations.
3: So, I think I mean we've already kind of even just in that the first couple of questions talked about how politics can play so much into vaccines and getting vaccines out, getting access to vaccines. So I want to talk now about the politicization of vaccines. We saw some examples, um, Iran banned uh, vaccines from the US and UK.
2: Imports of US and British vaccines into the country are forbidden. I have told this to officials and I'm saying it publicly now. If the Americans were able to produce a vaccine, they would not have such a coronavirus fiasco in their own country. Um, the USA was sanctioning
3: um, vaccine developers in Russia. The United States has added five Russian research institutes
1: to its sanctions list. They include the Russian Defense Ministry Research Institute, which has been working on a COVID 19 vaccine. The U.S. claims that these institutes have been
3: involved in the research of chemical and biological weapons. So how could the politicization of vaccines in geopolitics represent a challenge in vaccinating people around the world?
2: Well, it is. <laughs> it's a real challenge. I mean, it's uh it's quite clear. We are just mimicking the world geopolitical landscape, you know. So when you look at um, Sputnik Fives, the places where it's been approved and being used. Um, well, recently, just yesterday, I had Mexico um approved it, but so Hungary is the first, and I think right now is the only EU country, um, but. The rest of the countries are all countries that we know are on the Soviet bloc. Um, you know, so we have Bolivia, Belarus, Serbia, Palestine, Venezuela, and as you said, Iran. And Sputnik 5 was developed and way back somewhere in August, right? And it was always presented with doubts in the media. And Dr. Gottlieb, what do you think of this news? Well, uh, I wouldn't take it, uh, certainly not outside the... No, it was fair right to right us, us as, you know, not... The, the way it was presented is quite different from the other vaccines that were developed um, from the West. And so um, it's it's not strange, but it's just an unfortunate um, situation that an issue um, like a pandemic is still being politicized. Yes. <laughs> so as um, Dr. Edu pointed out,
0: we need to probably trace the 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 genealogy of this COVID nineteen vaccine. At least when we had the first vaccine till date, you know, short genealogy to sort of understand how the Cold War bipolarity is still alive, in, in although in a different context. So, Sputnik Five is from Russia, the first on record, and if you, and and the Russians themselves are I mean, creating a very interesting scenario with the naming of the vaccine Sputnik because we know that Sputnik is actually the race between the U.S. and then the USSR over who was to send the first artificial satellite into orbit. Our satellite
2: Sputnik lifted at 22 hours, 28 minutes, and the Russians beat
0: so them to it.
1: Well, Dr. Newell, what about the vital question that everybody is thinking about? Why and how did the Russians beat us to the draw?
0: So, well, it was interesting to see how the Russians chose to name this Sputnik Five. you know, in this of imprinting the geopolitical you know, statement in, in in a medical intervention. And then right after that, we had the Chinese Sinopharm come up with their own vaccine. Surprisingly, these two were never discussed as a matter of global concern in WHO um, um, records. It always seemed that they steered away from them, questioned their efficacy, questioned even the the issue of whether they had completed or the necessary trials that they had to go through. So when we put that in that context, and you look at the news reports here, if you check most of the news reports from Washington Post all the way to CBC Russia News,
1: said today it's You'll won. see
0: words like untested, even
1: though it hasn't completed phase three, unproven,
3: that hasn't been clinically
0: approved. yet to be approved.
3: Ejected straight into the
2: arm of Evelyn Wu last week,
0: and so these for these kinds of words signify to us that there was a rejection of a sort of those vaccines. A
3: vaccine so quickly and from a country notorious for propaganda and deception.
0: And then came in Pfizer, Moderna, uh, the Oxford, AstraZeneca um, vaccines, and then boom, it seems that we had accepted that. And that became the basis for the WHO's own COVAX plan, uh, you know, to kick in when they started buying up vaccines. What is of greater interest is that if we want to examine what this means in terms of vaccine efficacy, we know that Moderna is around 94, Pfizer 95. Just last night, uh, the Lancet, which is one of the most leading uh, medical peer publications, reported that the Russian Sputnik V was safe and effective and rated at 92%. You know, much higher than some other ones that are coming up, the Astra vaccine, and I think the, the Johnson and Johnson one, one of them is around 89% at the moment. So so clearly, if you look at the vaccine at 92% efficacy rate, why is the discussion not focusing on how that also plays into the global mix of vaccine access? So these are some of the subtexts
2: that you know go behind uh, the the larger context of what we're seeing. And just to add to that is the issue of even cost. When you check their Sputnik Five websites, they are reporting about um, ten dollars per dose. Just ten dollars. Now, the other vaccines, it's um, some of the figures are the figures are confidential, we don't have access to, but most likely way higher than that. So the efficacy is quite comparable, almost the same, or even higher. And when it comes to costs, talking about cost effectiveness, Way cheaper compared to the others. But do we get to hear about it as much? No.
3: Absolutely. I mean, I think it's been so interesting Mm -hmm. to see that because obviously, as you mentioned in the news here, there is a lot of skepticism when it comes to Chinese and Russian vaccines. Mm -hmm. But then when you look at the vaccines that a lot of lower and middle income countries especially are opting for, they're opting for the Chinese and Russian vaccines. So there is this real question of, well, how much of it is science and legitimate concern and how much of it is just politics and um politicization of science kind of coming into it
2: you know these are political you know it's and politics does not always follow facts per se or evidence and so i mean gordon will tell you uh, the fact that it's this is the efficacy it does not mean that the West will buy it, or it does not mean that then suddenly the u s. government is just going to um order um vaccines from Russia. No. um, there are other variables that would have to come to play,
1: sure. I mean, a particular attention has been paid to china and russia as we've just spoken about um, and their willingness to supply vaccine to african countries to latin america and southeast asian and to southeast asian countries Um, and this move has been viewed with a fair amount of skepticism by western media who have tended to view vaccine diplomacy as another way of securing chinese influence or chinese imperialism quote-unquote Is such skepticism warranted, or is this narrative potentially dangerous and, if unchallenged, a source of greater conflict that would impede real efforts for effective global health coordination?
0: I I think that for for everything that happens in the world, we need to have the hard context and the soft context. So vaccine supply or vaccine distribution already has within the hardcore aspect, that is fiscal production and distribution and then the soft issues of diplomacy, that is, how do we use that to build new forms of global partnerships? So just a little bit of context. The Chinese did a very interesting thing here that gives legitimacy to the Sinopharm vaccine because when they were doing the final stages of trial, the the ruler of Dubai, Sheikh Mohammed Al Maktoum, he publicly took the shot uh, on TV and that was in instead of a testament to that kind of relationship between um the the, the gulf and and China and it, it raised a couple of you know concerns in the West that what was going on here now, when we look at the the covax plan that Prince spoke about earlier the the challenge is that with advanced purchase agreements which act as sleeping contracts so when there are no pandemics or epidemics these agreements are sort of dormant but when there's a pandemic or an epidemic they kick in now we're at a point where you have the uh, the the producers of the vaccines supplying countries in the north ahead of everybody else so access to the COVID vaccine would only be 100 million at most for the first quarter of this year and way down the end of the year before we have maybe a half of about a billion or a billion plus. So d- developing countries, especially countries in the global north, are looking at alternative arrangements to this kind of challenge. So they have all kinds of arrangements that Prince mentioned with um, either Sinopharm or CanSino, which are leading producers of uh, these um, vaccines in China, and also with the Russians, Sputnik you would notice that the the us government has already placed some restrictions on some of the labs that are producing these vaccines in russia for example so there's all kinds of contestations going on here and because the pandemic is a serious crisis you know spiraling out of control it is interesting to see how states are taking advantage of the situation to sort of realign their relationships so it is a necessary situation for states, especially in the global south, to redefine what their overall interests are and sort of leverage on whatever is happening between the superpowers and see how best they can um, you know, create an enabling framework for them locally to be able to adapt to what is going on internationally.
3: Well, then moving on, um, we wanted to ask a little bit about equitable vaccine access and the role that international law could maybe play in that. Um, What role can or does international law play in helping to guarantee equitable vaccine access uh, for various populations, particularly concerning um, either countries that are being sanctioned and therefore face difficulties? uh, Washington maintains
2: food and medicine are exempt from its sanctions. But in practice, most international banks refrain from dealing with any Iranian transactions for fear of American, or penalties.
3: also for vulnerable populations living in conflict zones or under non-state
2: actors. The minister of health told Sky News it is not up to Israel to provide the vaccine to the Palestinian territories.
3: I mean, how does vaccine access work for for them who kind of fall outside of the the norm?
2: Uh, you know, Godwin, I don't know if we can really be talking about law in this in this case, right? I mean. You, I mean, the WHO. It's the main body that's supposed to, um, you know, be at the forefront of um, coordinating responses and with vaccine distribution. Um, who is supposed to be allocated what? But they don't have the tools, the legislative instruments, or um, any legal. These are not the legally binding um, things we're talking about here. Um, godwin is has more expertise in this um the first part of the question i think suggested what kind of framework do we have like global health framework
0: well perhaps just to go back a little bit the covax plan is that plan it's more or less the only equitable vaccine access program the more difficult issue is for countries in conflict situations and in for countries that have non-state actors uh, or countries that are in that dual governments like what we have in Libya, countries where there's turmoil over who really governs the country, like Venezuela. These are quite distinct in the way they function. So the kinds of crisis that we have in Venezuela is not the same as, as what we see, say, in Libya, for example. In Venezuela, Venezuela has actually written to the Pan American Health Organization requesting for uh, COVAX support. So that request has already been made. It's the same with North Korea, North Korea has written for that support and North Korea is not new to the co- the kind of arrangement that we have. One of the partner institutions in this COVAX plan is the Gavi Alliance. The Gavi Alliance has supported North Korea with vaccinations for childhood diseases like polio, diphtheria, things like that. So these are not entirely new arrangements at all. The only question that this brings up is the security Consents. In 2015, 2016, some polio vaccinations going on in Taliban-controlled Afghanistan and Taliban-controlled Pakistan resulted in the death of some WHO officials because some Islamic fundamentalists felt that this was a violation of Islamic norms. So that, you know, put that program in jeopardy. Now, these are some of the real-life situations that the WHO officials were have to confront when they go out there.
3: Right. Yeah, because I, I think there has just been this question of, well, first of all, even if there is international law governing this, I think it is really a matter of whether countries decide to follow it or not. I know that um, we were reading an article about um, Palestine and Israel concerning Gaza on the West Bank, where the UN was saying uh, to Israel, it's your responsibility to make sure that Palestinians get get access to vaccines, but then Israel was sort of saying, well, no, it's actually the Palestinians, it's their own responsibility under the Oslo Accords. So there's all these kinds of different laws floating around and it's a bit, it just seems like there is no, as you're saying, there's no one answer or right fit. Mm-hmm.
1: Definitely. And um, the pandemic has also, you know, posed Significant ethical questions and challenges with regards to our healthcare systems, government priorities, and the role of private actors in the global health system. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit about in what ways has the pandemic exposed ethical questions with regards to our healthcare systems and the government priorities and where does the line exist in terms of generating profit and providing effective healthcare? And I raise this question because Oxford University was going to open source its vaccine, but the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation was able to convince them otherwise and to sell exclusive rights to uh, pharmaceutical companies. So there are clear ethical questions here. So I I want to gauge with both of you a little bit about these kinds of ethical questions.
2: You know, the number one um, ethical concern that I see here is and I'm calling it an ethical concern, it's nationalism. Maybe nobody really calls it an ethical issue, but I think it's about time we looked at it if we could call it um, an ethical issue here. Um, And it actually defeats the purpose of, uh, or it defeats the values embedded in global health or a global response to a pandemic. You know, so to me, I see that as the number one issue. Um, once we're able to move past that, you know, that sort of nationalistic um, approach to our handling of the pandemic in individual countries, then that is a good step in how um, we're really going to address it. Then. How how did it come about? Um, I've had conversations about this with Godwin in the past, and he really saw this as a wave that was, that has started way before even the pandemic. And he foresaw this being very, very detrimental to all of us. And unfortunately the pandemic hit, and now we see this um, nationalism being played out here. Um. It's the pandemic has definitely exposed us, um, our emergency preparedness um, from a public health point of view. And so um, how were we, did we have enough, was our capacities, our public health infrastructure, were they well strengthened um, or not? Or was our public health system um, just structured for profit making? Was it... To, was there too much emphasis on um, pharmaceuticals as opposed to prevention? Um, these are questions that we are definitely going to have to reflect on once this is over. Now, the second thing, which is quite important is the,
0: for, as from a legal standpoint, probably like a political legal standpoint is the uh, the ongoing contestation at the World Trade Center about the patent regime for a waiver of intellectual property rights to allow especially developing countries to produce generic mm-hmm. vaccines based on the chemical compositions of brand, brand names. Now, <laughs> this is one of the hotly contested issues and I'm glad Prince raised that issue where um, pharmaceuticals took over from research institutions to produce. But we need to put that in the context of how much public funds have been invested by governments into all the projects so far there's not a single program that has produced vaccines without a huge um, inflow from public funds, either in the US, either in Europe, in Canada. So when, when we when we talk about uh, big pharma or big pharmaceutical companies reap, reaping their, their rewards, we need to situate this within the broader context of public welfare and look at the amount of money that has been, that has been put in in there. Some economists are already calling it that we are paying twice the price for one item because the initial outlay that had been made is what has driven us this far and that these things must be taken into account in in how we condition the the, the, the arrangements for pricing and distribution. So perhaps that is one of the key things, the public welfare element, should be one of the key things that should drive this discussion. once we lose sight of the public element then all these discussions will fall through you know and and we'll get nowhere with our with 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 our interventions
1: um well i was going to ask how vaccine prices are decided
2: well yeah that that it will be hard to detect. so in a very competitive environment um as this what we are currently in um, these this sort of information are, you know, um, confidential in, in most cases. Um, recently, and you only get it when they are leaked. And in fact, some information was recently leaked. Um, and so even in Canada, it, it really came up. Uh, people wanted to know how much you're paying. So these are agreements that national governments make with these companies. And so... Um, as part of their contracts, um, the public may not be privy to this um, information. Um, So to answer your question in short, how are they determined? Well, through negotiations, right, between the parties, national governments, um, the buyer and the the companies. Um, And if we get them, um, usually for for many reasons, right? Um, Yeah, there are so many reasons, but mostly because of, Um, the current situation, the competitive nature um, of the markets. Um, Everyone wants it. And so um, they wouldn't want to disclose.
0: The commission understands fully um, the point that you're making about the interest um, of uh, publicizing uh, the prices of vaccines. What we are saying is that this was part of the process to conclude these contracts, and we are not in a position... And again, because
2: uh, we lack... Um, a well-coordinated um, global health response to this it will continue to play out like this where country x does not know how rich country y was able to negotiate and get those prices
3: right and obviously that leaves all sorts of questions about because of limited supply whether bidding wars could ensue and again that's
2: mm-hmm.
3: you know kind gonna get left behind it it all boils down to like the same inequalities essentially
2: exactly exactly yeah so
3: we've, we've kind of talked about some of the logistical issues some of the political issues um we haven't talked a whole lot about public resistance to to vaccines and how that could represent another problem I mean so I was downtown the other week um downtown Vancouver and I saw a small protest going on against um mandatory vaccination um and obviously this is something that has played out in a lot of countries but I think it's kind of been skewed to countries in the global north actually I mean one poll in France supposedly uh 46 percent of the respondents said that they were unwilling to take the vaccine um so I mean why do you think there's been so much suspicion regarding taking the vaccine? And, and how can governments overcome this challenge? Like, is there a way to foster better trust?
2: It boils down to education. So I think two things. One, misinformation is key. Um, there is, you know, a lot of misinformation um, around. And when people are ill-informed, um, then it leads to some of these um attitudes, um, right? But then also, there is also quite a legitimate um, issue here. Let me take you back to around 1930 all the way to 1972, the Tuskegee um, study. So this was in the U.S. They were conducting this study to study the natural history of um, syphilis by the U.S. Public Health Service, right? So a major study and the subjects or participants were a group of black men. Now, when the treatments for um uh, penicillin became available in 1942, they weren't offered to these men. So, and they failed to provide information to, to them as well. And there were other unethical um issues that came up in this study, it's well known, and the US public response has been affected by this unfortunate incidents where people are sort of misled and again, marginalized people. We started off by talking about people being used as guinea pigs. And so these are still embedded in people's memory. There is deep mistrust with the authorities, plus misinformation, the age of misinformation, you have this issue of... um, vaccine on acceptance or vaccine but you know it's it's quite it's it's a very it's it's sensitive it's a sensitive issue because some of the concerns are quite legitimate but um their on their misinformation part you know education is key and i'll leave the rest for godwin right Um, so it's it's an interesting dimension to this whole discussion
0: because most of the discussions that are happening are happening at the very Macro level, at state to state levels, or between states and um, drug producers, without much focus on what's going on or how people are preparing themselves to accept or to receive the vaccines. And we we noted that even in, for example, in the U.S. and parts of Canada, and even parts of Europe, there were even anti-mask. <laughs> campaigns. Wearing a mask is unhealthy. It's fake
1: lying news <laughs> endangering anybody by not wearing a mask. So
0: we cannot discount the question of disinformation and misinformation as the basis for these concerns. And also in Canada, um, women, for example, especially indigenous women, were injected with all kinds of you know medication to which led to their sterilization. Uh, you know, as a result, some never had children again and didn't know why until recent um, royal commissions and other provincial commissions uncovered those kinds of situations. The same in the U.S. as well. So if people have concerns about receiving the vaccines, we cannot easily discount that as unfounded. It has some history around it. The only way out of this is education, 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 and a lot of transparency with the side effects of these vaccines and making that information available is because to keep the public in the dark, then obviously we are giving room and space for the flourishing of conspiracy theory, the very thing that we don't want at this moment.
3: Right, absolutely. But we've just got one more question, just like a quick wrap-up
1: question. Yeah, this is a question submitted from our audience. Um, How can we remove inequalities to access uh, to vaccines? How do we advocate for free universal access to vaccines?
2: First, I think we need to strengthen our global health bodies. The WHO, it's unfortunately, it it lacks capacity. It's heavily under resourced. Canada's healthcare budget is um, around two hundred and sixty-five billion dollars. What do you think that the WHO's budget is? Well, it's about five billion, right? That's about less than five percent. about two percent. So it's a it's a body we keep hearing of the WHO. You know, um, yes, develop guidelines, coordinate response, but the capacity is very, very, very limited, and and so. We need to really strengthen um, these global health um, bodies, the WHO in particular. And um, and then education is key to addressing some of these inequities.
0: Uh, for a start, we need the WHO platform, that's the COVAX plan, to succeed. Because if the plan does not succeed, there'll be no success in individual countries. We need to understand that what is happening requires that everywhere in the world has comparable vaccine access the variants we've seen say the brazilian variant the south african variant If you did all the vaccination in canada in the u.s if everybody took it 10 times over and these strains came in it's likely that we will reinfect people and will begin all over again there's the the second thing is making vaccines affordable the third thing that we should probably be looking at is uh, is to revisit our international legal regime for trade and how that configures pharmaceutical engagement, particularly whether we want to weigh rights, at least for this particular matter, because really there's a lot of financial outlay, public funds already put into this research. And so we should not underestimate that public welfare that underpins this. I think that we should also look at alternative treatments And there's research going on elsewhere uh, suggesting that other countries are looking at other forms of treatment for, for this, and it's important that the WHO itself engages with those health practices going on elsewhere. It is interesting to note that, especially African countries who suggested that they had some treatment, the kinds of response from the WHO itself quickly rebuffing those treatments suggest for the global south that they're not welcome in this development. So, if these kinds of research is going on in those places, we probably should approach it with an open mind, not with an outright rejection. I think that that also gives some legitimacy to the the validity of the work that the ritual itself does, especially in times like this.
3: So it almost seems as though there could be a degree of arrogance sort of and gatekeeping when it comes to you know who who gets to play a part in resolving this problem and, and who gets to kind of have to be the bystander, right? Certainly.
2: Certainly. Right. Who gets to be the hero at the end. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Dr. Adu and Godwin, thank you so much for joining us on today's episode of Global Get Down. And to our audience, thanks for listening and we'll see you on the next episode.
2: Thank you. Thank you.